Oh, yeah. Well, I thought I liked you guys last time. I like you even more now. (laughs) You are uh, just an amazing church, and you're doing so many good things. You've got a lot of passion for for the work of the church here, and uh, I'm just so encouraged to come to a place like this and to see so many good things happening, and I'm so thankful to be a part of this today, and uh, hopeful for great success with your upcoming youth rally as well. Uh, Let's look in that Genesis 2 text for a few minutes as we think about kind of closing out with this second session here today. Back in the, I guess it was the early 80s, my uncle, I thought, was the coolest guy on planet Earth. My uncle was always at the forefront of electronics. And I'll never forget going to my uncle's house and he said, come here, I want to show you something. So I went into the TV room and he sat me down and he said, this right here is something called an Atari 2600. I thought, man, that's cool. Some of y'all know what that is. Some of y'all are like, what is that? <laughs> you still have one. Wow. Huh? It still works. All right, man. Little laser blast for the day, huh? Uh, and, and I'll never forget, you know, he turned the thing on, and I was like, what does this thing do? You know, what is the purpose of this? I, I very quickly figured that out. Not everything is as self-evident <laughs> as, as that sort of thing. Not everything is, is uh, something that comes to your realization as quickly as, as like a home video game system, one of the very first. What if somebody came to your house and they brought a big uh, contraption, a big mechanical box, and they brought it and they said, listen, I just want to come by your house today, Doug. I want to present you with this big mechanical box as a gift to you. You might be like I was in the early 80s looking at an Atari 2600, and you might say, what's it for? (laughs) What does it do? And imagine the guy who just gave you that box says, I don't know. But I just thought I'd come by and give it to you. Now, you're thinking what? He's just trying to unload some junk on me. He doesn't want anything to do with this. He doesn't know what it is. How am I going to figure it out? There are a lot of people who look at life, and they ask these very self-same questions. What's it for? What is life for? What does life do? Why, why are we? You ever heard this one? Why are we here? I want to... I want to say a lot of people ask that question, especially as it relates to, should I marry this person or that person? Am I going to do this job or that job? Let me tell you something. When it comes to Scripture, there is an answer of what is life for? And it's usually an ideal far above the way we usually ask those questions. The Bible would answer it this way. What what is life for? Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7 says, in effect, God created you for his glory. Did y'all hear what I just said? That means you walk planet earth to glorify God every day of your life in every facet of your life. Everything you do 
every relationship, everything that you put your hand to do, every aspect of your work, you exist and you engage in those things. Why? To bring home a paycheck? Okay, that's down the list. First of all, to glorify God and to bring Him glory. And the Apostle Paul will take that sentiment and he'll bring it forward into the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. He says, so even down to the eating and drinking or whatever you do, do all to the what? Glory of God. You are walking planet Earth to glorify God. And that includes your marriage. Your marriage exists so that God would be glorified. Did we learn that in the first session? I think we did. I think we actually learned that marriage is not some construct that God created just to, you know, continue the species and give us companionship. Those things do happen. They exist in reality to show a greater, a far greater spiritual truth. As we declare through our love for each other, we declare to the world the love Jesus has for his people. That, that is a high standard that transforms our relationship. And not everybody in our world has that view of the relationship. For many years, I think it was about 50-something years, there was uh, an advice column called Ann Landers. I want to know how many of you ever heard of it. There was another one called Dear Abby, which was essentially the same thing. Ann Landers, I actually learned, was actually a fictional character played by two different women. <laughs> uh, actually, just when I went back and re-looked this, this little note up. So before the days of Internet and Google as your friend and whatever else... Uh, if you needed advice for your life, you might uh, write a letter in to an advice columnist, and this was who she was. And this one has always kind of stood out to me, and, and I often think about it when I think about something like marriage. This one guy says, Dear Ann, this is the craziest opening sentence ever, I'm happily married, but I've fallen in love with my girlfriend. What? What? Now I don't know what to do. Please help. P.S. Don't give me any of that morality stuff. Signed, Confused. And she wrote back, Dear Confused, the only thing that separates human beings from animals is morality. Please consult your local veterinarian. <laughs> Not everybody has the right view. <laughs> when it comes to marriage. So what I want us to see is this biblical concept, which we started out in the first session, sort of continue it here in the second one, uh, a little more laid back than the difficulty of the first one. We got the first one while we were fresh, full of coffee and caffeine, right? So let's, let's sort of fill out the biblical concept. You've got an outline, and I've got three ideas here that we'll note about marriage and will be done for the day. The first is we have yet to actually define the concept of marriage. And I'm going to define it this way. If we ask the question, what is marriage? We could define it as the binding promise of future love. Marriage is the binding promise of future love. And we just saw in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, in our first session... What Paul writes about it, as he's quoting from Genesis 2, which you've got open in verse 24, for this reason, 
a man will leave and cleave. He shall leave uh, his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, when we look at that language of leaving and cleaving, that's actually the language of something the Bible calls covenant. Now, you're familiar with the idea of covenant because as, as you hold up your Bible, you got two major sections known as an old covenant and a new covenant. Now, we're under the new covenant, but actually the Old Testament or old covenant, that's just an umbrella term that we use for multiple covenants found in your Old Testament. God made a covenant with Abraham to bring forth the son by which he would bring forth many descendants. And Paul uses that and gives a spiritual application. Uh, God made a covenant with David that one day a king like unto him would sit on his throne. Right? There are other covenants that we see that fall under that umbrella of Old Testament. But I want you to think about this particular covenant that's echoed in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14, where, where it reads, The Lord is witness between you, O husband, and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by berit. Berit is a very important Hebrew word. It is a word that means covenant. And in our Genesis 2 passage, there is a synonym for berit. It's davak, which means adjoining. So as you're looking in Genesis 2, it says the two shall become one flesh. That's a synonym for covenant. Davak, berit, very important Hebrew words. Now, what does all that mean? Well, what it means is that a covenant is a deep, exclusive Permanent, legal, personal, binding commitment. Now, it does not mean that it's necessarily a declaration of present love only. You know, you can say you love somebody and not be married to them, right? We recently went through a, a round of that in our house. Uh, last year, my middle daughter, 12 years old, decided she had found her first boyfriend. Oh, what a joy to my heart. And uh, we decided, and by we, I mean me, decided that we were not going to use the language of boyfriend at 12 years old. We were going to use the language of guy friend or friend who's a guy, okay? And uh, they, they decided that they were going to, you know, enjoy each other's company church events, church camp, what I, whatever else. She'd kill me if she knew I was... This is being recorded? Okay. <laughs> I might have rethought that. <laughs> but, um, where was I? <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, the boy, good, good kid. Oh, he's such a good kid. I'm backtracking. Uh, <laughs> Decided for this relationship that he loved, uh-oh, safe, there we go. Decided that he loved my middle daughter and wanted to express that to her by saying, I love you so much, I love you. My middle daughter comes to me and says, Daddy, he keeps telling me he loves me. What should I say? 
I said, you better not say that back to him. She said, why not? I said, because you're 12. And there will come a day when you understand what that phrase means a little more than how it's being used right now. Well, he's old news, and she's thankful <laughs> that I kept her saying, oh, I love you too. You know, first, first guy, 12 years old, declaration of love. Marriage or the, the concept of covenant is far more than a declaration of present love. Because you can tell somebody you love them and not be married to them, right? In reality, marriage is not so much a declaration of present love. Watch this. It's the binding promise of future love. What do I mean by that? The greatest teacher by far and away that I ever had in graduate school was uh, Dr. Harvey Floyd. Uh, and he was uh, my Greek teacher. We have a train running through. Okay. Uh, he was my Greek teacher. It took a lot of Paul's letters. And he once made this observation about marriage covenant. He said, in the marriage covenant, you are saying, I do, not just for today, but for all your days. Isn't that powerful? It's simple and powerful. And what he's saying by that is that marriage is the binding promise of future love for all your days. You are making this and establishing this covenant relationship. So marriage is not so much the warm and fuzzy feeling that the culture wants you to think marriage should be. And if, if you lose that feeling within the confines of marriage, then you can just get a divorce and go on and find somebody else that now you have those feelings of warm and fuzzy, you know, momentary excitement and, and all of that. That's the culture's concept. Nobody can promise you that. You cannot have that sustained throughout your entire life because here, here, and I don't want to say that love becomes something less than that early excitement. No, it becomes something more. It evolves past that. It becomes something deeper and greater if it's allowed to. It's the promise to be loving and tender regardless of your circumstances, regardless of when difficulties come. Love is a little bit like the ocean tide. It comes and goes, right? And let's be honest, there's going to be some mornings you wake up, you don't even like a person. <laughs> but because you made a binding promise of future love, your marriage is still secure. Because the tide's going to come back in again. That's the language of covenant. Not a declaration of present feeling, but the promise of future love. The world bases its idea of marriage on chemistry. And if you have the right chemistry with somebody, sparks will fly. That's, a, that's good and well at the beginning, isn't it? There was a movie that came out years ago, and I'm not going to tell you the name of the movie because I don't want you to watch this movie. But the producer of the movie said she wanted to design a movie to show the outdated idea of marriage. Because why we are here on planet Earth is to have those fleeting moments of happiness that keep us sustained on a crest of emotion throughout life. And so she wanted to have a production that sort of encouraged people to float from one relationship to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, while continuing to try to ride that crest 
of that initial emotion. I think our culture is doing a pretty good job of that already, right? She didn't need to make a movie about that, did she? That's already here. So the idea that the culture has is that marriage exists for your ego. (laughs) Marriage exists in some way to enhance you. That's the way the culture looks at it. I'll dare say that's the way some people in the church look at it. Now, W.H. Auden once wrote something insightful. He said, any marriage, this this is a pretty bold statement, any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. And the reason he said that is because a covenant is extremely interesting, far more so than mere chemistry. To actually love somebody to choose to do so. To be absolutely committed to somebody else's joy. So much so that you would die for somebody else. That's also a passion. It's just a different kind of passion, is it not? That's a deeper, far more evolved and developed kind of passion. So to get that kind of passion... To get to that particular point, first off, you've got to get to know somebody who they really are. I don't know if you realize this or not, but when you first fall for somebody, you're sort of falling for an image of who you think they are, right? And over time, as you interact, a lot of those details get filled in as the relationship progresses. That's just the normal way things go about. And then secondly, to develop that kind of passion, you have to make some sacrifices, meaning You have to work your way through difficulties. Uh, I heard a very wise man say last night at about 9.30, he said, you know, you, you might not ever be able to really know if somebody's your good friend until you have your first argument. And what he meant by that was when you encounter your first spell of difficulty with that individual, it's only then that you will learn how you'll interact when things get difficult. And there's a lot of truth to that. And that applies to relationships in the church. (laughs) That applies to how you view your eldership and your preacher and your spouse, right? How you interact with each other in conflict. So marriage is the binding promise of future love. It's the language of covenant. It's not present thrill. In fact... It's covenantal, and it's far deeper. So that's our definition of marriage. So what does marriage do? And this is very vital, and it speaks to our first session, which Paul instructed us in Ephesians 5. What marriage does is it should cleanse us, and it should strengthen us. It should cleanse us and strengthen us, and by that, both of those I mean spiritually speaking. Your job as a spouse, you ever heard this before, is to get your spouse to heaven. Do you take that seriously? That your job is to get your spouse to heaven. And your spouse's job is to get you to heaven. Now what happens in a marriage if both of you are working on that same goal? All of a sudden there's harmony. All of a sudden there's unity. Not every relationship has unity. Not every relationship is a good one. People don't always see eye to eye. I got to tell you, I have been uh, extremely blessed... I've been married since 2001. How many years does that make? This is 18, right? So 17 years, right? Well, in June. 
And I, I, I'm happy to say about that that my wife is far more spiritual than I am. In fact, she actually rescued me during my college years from a long spell of faithlessness. And I have always relied on her passion for God and her strength for God. And I'm very thankful for that. And what God expects of us is to develop in one another a relationship by which we strengthen one another spiritually. So that's sort of the language that Paul was using earlier with husbands loving your wives in order to give yourself for her. But notice this section that we did not look at in the first passage, in the first session. This section in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, where he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. We got that part. And gave himself up for her. We got that part. Watch this. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any kind of blemish to be holy and blameless. That's powerful language of what the expectation is. So we enter into a marriage not to be the savior of the other person, but to partner with the savior to help your spouse to be saved. Now, in, in, in the way that the world looks at marriage, if you ask our culture what's the purpose of marriage, they'll say, I want somebody who won't change me. I want somebody who will come into my life and adapt to my lifestyle. They're not going to change me, but they're going to fit into my way of life. I want companionship. I want romance, but I don't want to change. And I want to tell you that is a very incomplete view of what the Bible has to say. Those things are important. Can I tell you something, though? If the Bible says anything, it says that every one of us needs to change. Can, can I say something to you right now that might hurt your feelings, but I need to hear it, we all do. You're not perfect. None of you are. You're not perfect in any facet of your life. None of them. Paul says, all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. So that high ideal of what my life's purpose is, which is to glorify God, I've not met that. Not in the way I should have. I have sin in my life. That means I need correcting, and it means you need correcting. And guess why your spouse is there? Not to fit into your lifestyle or to enhance you so much as to help you to change. To help you to be more like what God would have you to be. Philippians 1.6, the good work he begins in you. He brings to completion on the day of Jesus' return. So there's a sense in which we could look at our spouse and say, I love you, but I'm also excited about what God is making you into. And I want to be a part of that. And there's going to be a day when you and I and our spouse, we're going to be standing before the throne of God. All of our sins are wiped from our per person and we're going to be able to look at, at our spouse and say, I always knew it could be like this. I always knew you were going to stand before God and be this beautiful. I always knew we had this purity in our future. 
So that's very, very beautiful. All right, so what, is, what then does marriage need? Let's think about that, that third aspect. What does marriage need? Uh, if we believe then that we're not perfect, that means we need to be perfectible. I'm not sure that's a word. I might have just made up a word, Matt. Somebody who is fast with Google can tell us that perfectible is a real word. But what I mean by that is we're not perfect, but we're perfectible, meaning we're working towards perfection, though we won't, we won't get there in this life. We're working toward it. We don't look at our imperfections and say, well, I'm not perfect, so I might as well just give up. I mean, I hear people say that all the time in church, don't y'all? I'm not perfect, so I might as, not, might as well not even try. What? That's not Bible. You have to be perfectible. And that means marriage needs a lot of gospel-based work. It needs a lot of submission in key ways to one another. This is the key to marriage. And unless you know God's love powerfully in your heart of hearts, you're never going to be able to do what you should do in a marriage relationship. So, if you look to your spouse for ultimate happiness, you're always going to be disappointed. And you'll look to leave as soon as your spouse hits a difficulty in their lives. But marriage is a binding promise of future love that requires a lot of gospel-based work. You ever heard somebody say, Marriage takes work. Can we shift that and say marriage needs a lot of gospel work? <laughs> marriage needs a lot of Bible-based work. So as we close out, I'm going to give you really quickly, this, this has never been said by a preacher ever, I'm going to give you really quickly 18 biblical keys. 18, quickly. That's never been said together, ever. But I'm really going to go fast. And they're actually listed, so you don't have to try to keep up with me and write them down. One, the most important preparation a person can make for marriage is in becoming the kind of person one should be. Two, realize you must choose a person of character who is willing to care for another person be unselfish and loyal, and who believes in the sanctity of marriage. Very rarely does somebody marry somebody and then successfully change them to be that kind of person. My first, I, I don't need to chase her out. Oh, I'm not going to tell this story. We are being recorded. Okay, number three, realize what truly makes a person attractive. Proverbs 31 is where true beauty is described. Four, seek guidance before problems become too big. You know when people come to see me, and you know when people come to see Matt, and you know when people go and sign up to pay $120 an hour for a marriage counselor? Usually they come when it's already too late. And the elders and you're presented with a set of problems whereby both parties are so entrenched that it's going to take a supreme effort to dig them out of it. 
Don't be so proud as to not see guidance before problems become too big. Five, remember you're both Christians. And all that's included with that, including Ephesians 5's instruction, which we just looked at. Six, remember the Christian doctrine of sin and that there is no perfectionism. Seven, realize from the beginning marriage is permanent. It's a covenant, which we just talked about. Eight, avoid the language of divorce. Don't even use that in jest. Never speak the language. If you don't do this, then I'm going to divorce you. That is improper conduct for a Christian. Nine, be forgiving. If you expect the Lord God to forgive you, why can you not forgive your spouse? I'm just asking a question. That's my job. Number 10, be kind to each other. Don't be kinder to the people that you work with and the people that you live with. It's a great rule of life. A lot of times we get frustrated with the people we work with or the people we encounter, and we, we're so frustrated about it because we can't, we can't vent that. And then where do we take out our frustration? Relationships at home. Cloud of negativity. Eleven. Oh, I just said that kind of. Be as patient with each other as you are with strangers. You're not the only one with problems. I try to remember that on the interstate this morning. <laughs> on my way up. Number twelve. Do not ever make each other jealous. That speaks against the idea of covenant. Thirteen. Make up your mind to live within your means. Fourteen, do not permit the pursuit of a career or anything else to rob you of the time you should spend together. I'm going to give you real talk right now. If I minister to my congregation faithfully and fail to minister to my wife and three daughters, I have failed in life. My number one goal right now is to never raise a PK. Y'all know what a PK is? I don't want that. And by that, I mean, they are by definition preacher's kids, but you know what I mean by that, where people look at that and say, well, he was faithful preaching for us, but man, I know he's brokenhearted over how his kids are now. They hate the church. I shield my daughter as best I can from every ridiculous complaint that in the church, we, oh, we're singing too many of these. Oh, I'm upset about this temperature gauge. And, I mean, you would not even, somebody brought a water bottle into the worship assembly. What are we going to do? Please, can we convert some souls? Can we engage in discipleship, please? And I try to shield my daughters from every bit of that nonsense that I can. I want them to grow up to love the church. And if I fail to minister to them, I have failed. And if brother so-and-so, this is real talk, if brother so-and-so calls me at 9.30 at night, because we're always on the clock, you know that, right? Calls me at 9.30 at night and wants to complain about this or talk to me about that, but it's not some pressing issue, I'm going to talk to you, brother. Thank you for calling me. I know this is pressing for you. How about you, let's get together in the morning. Can you meet me for lunch? I'm with somebody right now. Guess who I'm with? You better believe I'm with a member of the church already. Real talk. Hope my elders don't watch that part. 
Number 15, learn to communicate. I'm not telling you to become an orator or a public speaker. What I am saying to you is within your relationship, sometimes you can learn to finish each other's sentences, right? Sometimes you can learn to finish each other's sentences, right? You know what's coming next. And within this relationship, learn to communicate with each other. 16, remember how you felt, what brought you together when you first were in love. 17, remember commitment sustains love. And lastly, 18, well, now here's a thought. Apply the golden rule. Blessed is the man who finds a girl who loves God more than him. And blessed is the man who waits for a woman like that and prays that God would send her his way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for these good people that are here. Thank you for this amazing church and her good works. Thank you for its leadership. Thank you for its ministers, for ministers' wives, elders' wives, for the, the good and faithful brothers and sisters who are here today. I pray that you would wrap your arms strongly around them and increase the health of their relationships with each other. Help them to love each other more deeply, be more committed to one another than ever before, and to follow your will in all ways. It's in the name of Jesus we pray it. Amen. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Thank you for the invitation.